Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of CJ and the Duke. As always, I am your co-host, Robert the Duke Fedoric. And I am Corey, CJ Wesley. CJ and the Duke has a wide audience of ServiceNow devs, architects, and product owners. So if you want to bring your product or service to that audience, check the description below for sponsorship opportunities. What are we talking about today, Corey? Today, Duke, we're going to talk about failure detection and avoidance. In the context of getting to the finish line in your ServiceNow deployment slash implementation. To start off, we're going to talk about a situation that pops up when you have multiple resources on a project. Who's the alpha, essentially? Who's the person calling the shots, who is going to lead the engagement, and who has the follow? This situation might sound like your typical type A back and forth, but it's a little bit deeper than that. It's really about who the client trusts more or who the client should trust more. And I think there's always a a thought on that from uh, both sides that that person should be me. As the vendor, I should be trusted more than the independent consultant that the client happened to hire. But it really depends on what the roles are in the project. If I'm an independent consultant who is only concerned with the client, and you're a vendor who does make their money by providing services to the client, the client might have a more vested interest in trusting my words versus yours, at least in scenarios where there's an obvious conflict. I feel like there's contention here all the time. I've been on a number of projects where I was brought in as an external architect, essentially a shot caller for the project. Right. But they had brought in a larger scale partner to do the work post-design, but that partner comes with an architect. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, they're bringing their opinions to the table too. And it's service now. There's always multiple ways to skin a cat, but nobody has to pick it. After that's being picked, we don't have time to go back and rechew our food. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We can't re-legislate every every little thing. That's right. right. And then the interpersonal friction that comes with that. I feel like it happens a lot, but customers aren't cognizant that they have to pick an alpha. Absolutely. Another experience I had was, again, I was brought in specifically for architecture and shot calling, and they brought in a very prestigious vendor. And we laid out in the first meeting, hey, listen, this is the way work and decision and design flows. And that's that. But then you're just reaching the point where hmm, things are a little quiet. And then they're, hey, we're ready to push to test. (laughs) (laughs) It's like those situations are are really weird to me because by nature, I'm a a team player. I like to include everyone in decision making process. But but when the decision is made, it's time to move forward. There is a whole lot of value in having a client pick that person who's going to make that decision and be responsible for it. And in fact, one of the key pieces on any SOW that I write says that they need to pick someone internally who has that role on their end too. I need to have one point of contact that I can go to and say, okay, hey, we've got a decision that needs to be made. These are the three options. I need you to tell me what we need to do. And I don't need you to pull me into three meetings to try to figure that out. I don't need you to tell me that you need to consult. Like you might have to do all of those things. I don't care. I don't want to be involved with you consulting, you know, the president on whether or not we should add four options to an incident form. I want to just be able to go to you and tell you, this is what we have. These are the options. Tell me what to do. And then you figure it out on your end and come back. I don't want to be involved with all of that. So when the client is dealing with vendors and other architects or whoever is on the project, and those folks are feeling like they're at the same level, a decision maker Mm -hmm. and just stick with it. Having two architects doesn't help you unless you flag one as chief architect for the project. Then and only then does it help you because this person makes the decisions, everything else is input and you can split the things that you need to to do input on. 
So if you're a customer that bakes your own, you don't have to worry about this, obviously. But if you're the kind of customer that says, I want to bring in a partner to do a lot of work in advisement, but I also need an independent foil to the partner, which is something Corey and I have both done a lot, then you've got to pick the alpha and you've got to let that expectation up front and it's got to be enforced. Absolutely. Otherwise you run the risk of the project going off the rails. Yeah, it goes, everything goes way slower, way higher friction, way more hurt feelings. It's a mess. Yeah, and more importantly, a higher chance that the project will fail, right? And that's what we're trying to avoid here. The next failure to detect in advance and avoid if you can is team composition. You should be very cognizant of the way your partner structures their team and not only just on the scope of work, but pay attention to all the people that have to be on a meeting. And if they're pulling in a ton of managers, an engagement manager, and a project manager, and a QA manager, and a a documentation manager, and a, a technical success manager, find out who the devs and architects are and make sure that they are a decent percentage of the team composition because otherwise you're basically paying like if we peg these people at like a hundred dollars an hour each i've seen meetings that are bam that was five thousand (laughs) dollars and it was everybody except the dev and architect right (laughs) so i do this all again (laughs) Yeah. Don't be afraid to ask questions like, why do I need this many of that? Where are the devs? Where are the architects? And make sure that they are a big percentage of the total team composition. Question everything when it comes to team composition. I totally agree with you, Robert. There's no way that you can actually make a good team in a vacuum. You just have to make sure that the folks who need to be there, and these folks are going to vary meeting to meeting and project to project, but you absolutely need to make sure that you got the right folks in the right meetings. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. And 100 BAs does not equal one dev. No, never does. And being honest, sometimes one dev doesn't equal that BA either. Sometimes you got a guy who's really good at coding and stuff, but he sucks at talking to people. Right. (laughs) Yeah, the requirements are going to suck. That's where it all boils down to making sure you got the right team composition and the right people in the right place at the right time if you want to avoid failure. Uh, There's some other kind of downstream consequences of team composition as well. As we said, make sure you know where your architects and dev are coming from, but make sure you understand what the architect's allocation to the project is too. I see a lot of partners love to split their architect up, right? And you know they say up front, oh, we're going to get 25% of the architect, but these architects will come in for their one weekly meeting of what's going on at this client. And they're frazzled because they got five other clients on their mind. They're thinking about the fire burning and somebody else's implementation. And they're not thinking about the design work they got to do at your place. So find out how your architect is being allocated. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't want someone's leftover processor cycles. Right. <laughs> right, right. I, I understand the reality of it, but be upfront about it. Like yeah. your architects also on five other projects. So yeah, exactly. you get one that's in four or three or two or whatever. I, like, you know, give me the architect who's not overclocked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Another thing you can see here is time zone shenanigans. So pay very close attention on what options you're given for meetings. I, I was at one customer where the partner's like, you can have either Tuesday at 7 a.m. or Wednesday at weird times and not very many of them. And it was because they wanted their offshore members to be on the calls. Well, why can't you get the message from the offshore people and save me the time? Let me have meetings in my own damn time zone. <laughs> right, you're the client. Mm-hmm. The, it should be the partner's responsibility to 
understand what their offshore resources have done and are doing and speak for them, not have them speak at a meeting and throw off everybody else's schedule. Exactly. And then you should also make this stuff clear up front. Like these are our working hours. These are when we will have folks available. And based on that, you need to have your folks available inside of this window. No, we're not making compromises unless we've already decided to make those compromises up front. And the last component of team composition is do the team members cycle on and off often? I hate the times when you've got something high friction about the project, some big thing that we need that's complicated, that doesn't come out of box. And we've thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And the partner says, let's call up our champion. And so the champion comes in and it's like, so tell me about you. <laughs> and, and they've been told nothing about what's going on. And it's like, oh, we got to go back to square one on this. Cause we've been talking about this for weeks and it oh. leaves a sour note in the stakeholder's mouth. So watch how fast the members swap in and out and make sure that somebody is given proper handoffs to the people that come on board new. Because they can't afford to be a blank slate when they come in. Somebody's got to debrief them. There's nothing worse than when you get that guy who kind of airdrops into the situation right. as the savior, and he has no idea what client he's even at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they advocate, oh, why don't you just do it out of box? Well, we've explained a dozen times by now why we're not doing it out of box. And if anybody had taken yeah. five minutes to tell you. Yeah, so you're already making a hot situation hotter when you do something like that. Like yeah. the idea is to come in and diffuse. So if you're going to drop in your expert, make sure he's properly briefed and he understands the political climate, understands the technical climate, and mm -hmm. he's in a position to come in and diffuse the situation and actually to create a solution. That's right. Otherwise, all you're doing is just turning up the heat on your own self. Now we use handoffs in, an, in another context too, don't we? That we do. That we do. When we talk about the documentation handoff, let's take a step back. Because when we're turning over the project to the client, the client always expects documentation. Most of us will hand off that documentation. Some of us will not hand off that documentation. You know why? They don't have any. Right? <laughs> As a client listening to this podcast, right? You should know that the a deliverable that is non-negotiable is documentation on solutions that are built. And not just any documentation. You don't just want a notepad.txt. You want actual good documentation that can reference the actual items that have been built. Documentation on why certain possibly contentious or maybe not best practice decisions were made so that when six months down the line or a year down the line or two years when teams turn over and no one remembers this project, someone comes in and says, well, you built this and it's not best practices. The idea is that they can refer to documentation and they'll know why you built it this way. Right. Yeah. But you can't do that if you don't build the actual documentation. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on what makes good documentation good or even why you absolutely positively need it. I think the way to detect this failure before it's happening is when they've started developing, ask them to see the documentation. Right. Right. I don't understand this super chronological paradigm of we're going to do the whole thing and then we're going to go do the, the documentation. So five weeks later, you're going to remember what you did. Right. Absolutely like, not. Document it while deving. It's not hard. I will not hear that documentation is hard bullshit anymore. So as a customer, I would say it's quite okay to ask to see the documentation in progress in a project. It's super simple. And the more they say no, the more you should sweat. 
Absolutely. And even as a project manager too, it's okay to build in extra time in the sprint for documentation and to call that out to the client so that they know the value the documentation produces. I think there's too often we minimize one of the more valuable parts of a project, and that's the documentation. And we minimize it by hiding it in the deep, dark bowels of the scope somewhere. And it's like, oh, and by the way, we'll also document it, hand it over to you somewhere. No, no, no. We need to call that out. We're going to build this and we're going to document it. Correct. It has to be called out so that your client actually understands the value proposition there. Yep. Like just keep tabs on it. Keep checking. It's okay to do. So the next concept I want to introduce you to is the low value best practice focus. The industry is a decade and a half old now. There's a lot of stuff that has been proven. There's a lot of stuff that has gray areas with good opinions. There's huge libraries of best practices now. There's all kinds of vendors that have their own personal bodies of work that testify to the best practices. But Remember the why of your project. You might be a healthcare company and your epic upgrades are always a huge pain in the butt and the CEO and CFO are breathing down the neck of IT because guys, we're in the business of billing for medical services, stop effing up our epic upgrades. So the customer will be on site saying, ServiceNow deployment, I need to make my epic upgrades easier, Right. Yep. And, and then on the same day, vendor comes out with like, here's a two hour meeting where we're going to discuss the notifications for incident management and look at all of our best practices. It's like at some point, those low level best, who cares? Sure. Do that. Right. But make sure you are well on the way of slaying a dragon. Yeah. That's all I have to say is make sure you're slaying a dragon. The best practices are best and good because they take those decisions out of your way so that you can get to the dragons. Yes. So, so if you find you're in meetings with BAs and such, and the constant focus is you should do this because it's best practice, but you're still sweating because there's a dragon ravaging your countryside. Might be time to ask some questions. That's right. <laughs> have a reset. Get the engagement manager in and have a reset about the project. Yeah, I get the best practice stuff, but here's what's really going to make me sweat. Let's have a meeting about that. Dragons get priority. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We, I mean, we could talk all, all day about best practices, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, if your best practice didn't fix my problem, and that's what we're in the business of doing, right? Mm -hmm. We're in the business of solving problems and fixing those problems. And if your best practice doesn't address my problem, doesn't let me sleep better at night, mm -hmm. if your best practices don't do those things, then I don't want to really want to hear about them until you've talked to me about what you're going to do to do those things. Yep. And then at that point, we can talk about your best practices, but yeah. not before. Best practices is a probabilistic thing, right? It's probability. So nine times out of 10, this is the best way of doing things. Yeah. What about Absolutely. number 10? What about, who, what about, you know, Jersey number 10? Well, here in Chicago with Jersey number 10, <laughs> we've, got, we've got some big problems. So absolutely, you need to focus on that 10th number. Um, right. That's a Mitch Trubisky joke for anybody out there listening. All right, that one went right over my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the football fans probably caught it, but you can cut it. Following on to that, we're going to talk about you know, two things that are near and dear to my heart when it comes to causing project failures. If there's ever such a thing as to say near and dear and project failures in the same sentence. The scope creep and sunk cost fallacy, right? Two sides to the same coin that both 
will cause you heartburn. Uh, scope creep is probably the number one contributing factor to project failures of anything I've ever experienced in my career. We all sit down and we all decide on a pizza. And we say, all right, we're going to keep this simple because there are a lot of us. We're just going to get pepperoni on the pizza. Everyone's fine with that. One guy actually thinks, hey, I want sausage. And then so we make an exception. All right, we'll put half sausage on one half of it. But then another person thinks, well, you know, that person got sausage. I kind of want pineapple, right? Nobody should eat pineapple on pizza. But I kind of got, I want pineapple. So we put pineapple on the other half. And then somebody chimes in and they want mushrooms. And somebody wants peppers. And then somebody wants anchovies. And all of a sudden, you've got a pie that nobody actually wants to eat. Your project just failed. Because you migrated from the very basic tenets of what you wanted to get done, and you tried to be everything to everyone, and you failed at everything. And that's just not something that we can do. So when you're laying out the project, you have to stick to the things that you actually deem are important, the things that are in the project charter, and then execute on those. Anything else that comes up that are outside of that charter, that's an enhancement. That's project number two. Those are things that we, we don't even want to get into and we don't want to deal with. And I'll take the opposite side of the coin. Because we've got to have at least one good argument on. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It's equally wrong to be ultra orthodox about your scope because scope changes exist for a reason. Projects change for a reason. I'm sure that when engineers are building a bridge, some complication comes up. They got to make new decisions. They need better materials. They need more of something. And so you have to keep an open mind about changing your scope. A scope creep is bad, but you still must allow room for the scope to change. My favorite metaphor of this is a battlefield. The scope of work is drawn in the quiet general's office with yeah. like a pristine, unwrinkled, unmuddied map. And we make our battle plan and you're the commander who comes on site and it's like, oh, that ditch that we were going to hide in is now a river. And, right. and they also brought tanks and it's just <laughs> sometimes you get to the battlefield and the lay of the land changes the nature of the project. That's life. What are you going to do about it? You're going to keep an open mind. You're going to go do your scope change. Yeah. The key part of that, you said scope change, not scope yep. creep. Like, and, and that's the difference, right? The scope change is an intentional sit down and discussing a change of scope of the project. That yep. change gets incorporated into the charter. So you now have a new project that has an expanded charter and everyone's focused now on that new charter. In the past, you had an old project that has enhancements, not called enhancements. They're just called pieces of the project that no one thought through well enough to incorporate mm -hmm. into the charter. And so you have this thing where you should all be traveling down the center of the road and you got to the point where the road ran out, but nobody reported back that there was no more road. You just kept going into the forest, right? And you just, you, and it's like, well, we'll just figure it out when we get here. That's not the way to run a, run a project. When you get to a point where something's unanticipated and you actually need to make a change, you need to stop, go back into that quiet general's office, take out that pristine map, get a red marker and start marking it up. And then you're going to go back out to the battlefield right. and say, all right, this is what we've decided to do because we ran out of land. I love that word you used, intentional. There's all the projects where, oh, they want this too. How many days? Two days. Okay, well, we'll just do it. Just throw it in. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the scope creator right there versus like, hmm, yeah. well, we thought that, but this is what we understood it to be. Two days is two more days. You're not going to eat that anywhere. Right. Um, a good PM will understand that. They won't just say, well, we have to do it and we still have to make this deadline, right? A good Absolutely. PM just is a truth teller. They are just there to show what reality is. And if reality yes. is unpalatable, change other variables. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. A good PM was responsible for the transparency of the project and how some cultures aren't necessarily set up to hear that transparency and how that also contributes to project failure. That's a whole nother tangent, but mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. Like that oh, project yeah, sure. manager. Yeah, fine. Let's, let's hit a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's extremely important that the project manager is, is the truth teller, right? Like they have to be able to speak truth to power in these situations and power has to be willing to listen. So you got to mm-hmm. know what your culture is. So when you're hiring somebody to come in and execute a project and you're hiring a project manager to manage that execution, you got to be willing to listen to that person when they tell you this thing's going off the rails. Yeah. Right. You can't just stop and say, we don't believe you. (laughs) We hired you for this very specific point, but we don't believe you. Or don't ever tell us that again. Go back to where you were and don't ever come back to me with bad news again. Like I've been in those situations where mm-hmm. you can't speak truth to the executive stakeholders, right? They only want to hear that projects on time and moving, and moving ahead um, appropriately, yeah. right? And so you got the situation where the actual uh, situation on the ground is different than what is believed in the boardroom. And you're getting commands that are saying, hey, march over this river. There's no river. I've seen PMs get chewed up and spit out too, but I think the difference between the ones that get consistently bowled over and the ones that are the bulldog PMs that go in front of the executives and speak truth to power boldly, I think the latter brings options. If you go in as a PM and say, we're over budget or we're going to be late by three weeks, of course, they're going to be like, that's a simple statement. They're going to come back with a simple answer. Find an answer for me. But if you said the project is going to go over by three weeks, unless you allow me to add another dev at this price or allow me to take out this part of the scope, because then you've offered them a decision that they can make versus a target to yell at. Right. Like you've given them both information and also alternatives, right? And those are key things that you need to deal with. Those are, that's the way that you speak to decision makers, right? They're accustomed to having information provided and then alternatives. So as long as you're being transparent and also giving them alternatives that you can find, or also being extremely transparent when there are no alternatives that you can see, and then enabling them still to make a decision based on the information that they have in front of them, that will counter scope creep. I say one other uh, factor for PMs that, again, you can detect errors and control for them is how well they stick to the three things they have to manage. Cost, schedule, and scope is a PM's domain. So when your PM is getting engaged in arguments between devs, architects, and BAs about the how something is going to get done, I think you're already in bad territory. The project manager right. should basically be the one like, okay, you guys have figured it out. Tell me when it's going to be. Tell me how much of Absolutely. each resource is going to cost. Then they go speak truth. But when they're getting engaged in those discussions, you got a PM that's outside the PM scope and it's only going to confuse things. Yeah. Everyone has to do their job on the project and, and their job only, right? In order to keep everything clean, in order to make sure that the best information is being relayed back to the stakeholders and the best decisions are coming down. Yeah, kind of goes back to that team composition again, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, now yeah. that we've gone full circle, I think we're at time. Yeah, look at that way. All right. Thanks for hanging out with us again, folks. This has been another episode of CJ and the Duke. As always, I am your host, Robert the Duke Fedoric. And I am Corey, CJ Wesley. We'll Goodbye, see you folks. next time. Take care.